Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast with Tim Daly. I'm Osher Ginsberg and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by the good people who support the show at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Osher, Patreon dot Osher. The people who support me there, support the show, help the show come to air every week, allow me to pay my audio producer, Andy Ma and my production coordinator, Haley Van Spanya. So thank you so much uh, for every $5, at least $5 a month will get you in. You can support me with more money. You can support me with less money. But for as little as 5 bucks a month, you get access to exclusive episodes, exclusive content, and a whole bunch of other things. Thank you all very much for all the love that came on this show, came to this show uh, from the Ben St. Lawrence chat last week. Super inspiring. I found the last two conversations with Michael and Ben. And uh, I do try to keep diversity uh, as a priority on this show, to have both women and men equally represented on this show. I understand that the last few weeks have been a bit of a sausage party here. I apologize for that. It's just the way things worked out with booking over the Christmas period. Um, But I will be getting back to the guy-girl, guy-girl release schedule as soon as I possibly can. Um, Talking to you on a Sunday morning in Bronte uh, last week, I was in South Africa doing I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and it's uh, it's great to be back. I highly recommend you go to South Africa. It's a cracker of a place. It's one flight from a lot of cities in Australia, uh, especially if you're in Perth. It's only like five hours or six hours or something. Very, very close and uh, an incredible place to be. We uh, got picked up at the airport in Johannesburg, I know, actually, we drove, went from Johannesburg and we flew north and we got picked up from a little airport there uh, near the Kruger National Park where they're shooting. We had about a two-hour drive to get into set uh, through the bush. And um, uh, we had a, a security driver. He, like many security guys, ex-cop over there, and uh, he was telling us all about the country. And, um, yeah, it was great. Had a great 
great time. The we were very, very close to the, as I said, very close to the national park. And as a result, there's animals everywhere, like zebras on the road and baboons everywhere and wildebeest on the driveway. All, all the things you think were there were there. It was uh, a truly fantastic thing. It's a bit of a confronting country sometimes. 56 million people, one-sixth size, times the size of Australia. Uh, as... Last time when I was there for The Bachelor, uh, we did a lot of driving, so we got to see a lot of the ways that different people lived. And, um, yeah, it's confronting when you see a shantytown by the side of the road. And our driver explained to us that a lot of the people that live in the shantytowns, uh, I mean, literally a piece, couple of pieces of corrugated iron held down with some house bricks, a few cardboard boxes for insulation, a lot of the people from shantytowns uh, are immigrants from other parts of Africa who got there illegally and they've just come on foot. Uh, they've just walked across the border and found their way to, to South Africa. And you'd, then there was, I mean, but it makes you really think. It really makes you think about what it would take, what it would take for you to go, you know what, I'm going to walk a couple of hundred kilometres to go and live under a piece of corrugated iron, insulated with some cardboard boxes with no running water, no toilet, no power, because that will be better than whatever it is is happening right now. And it really makes you think about what we have in this country and what we get to live with. And also the things that we complain about, the things that we think, oh, that sucks because of, you know, all kinds of small inco insignificant things. I was... Uh, it was a bit confronting to see that, but it was it was great to be up there. A fantastic setup they've got there up um, up near the Kruger. There, there's got to be 500 people on site. Everything was brought in because they're literally in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they've built a essentially a, a small village uh, out of demountables and um, pop-up tents and generators and cool rooms, and it's an incredible operation to get for one and a half hour TV shows live to air every week from the middle of the jungle. It was amazing. A big thanks to Will, my engineer, my radio engineer that came with me so I could do my radio show from there. He is was one of these engineers. He's 24. He's literally, he's Hacker Man from Kung Fury. He really is. Uh, he's like, hey, Will, we're losing the link. Hang on, calibrating, typey, type, 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 done. He's able to recode things and code things on the fly. He's a fascinating guy. But it was uh, it was a really good week. Did go into the camp where the celebrities were. Very interesting to see them. They were all very hungry and quite sharp is how I would, how I would say they, they appeared because um, they've been essentially fasting. They're on 800 calories a day and they were very uh, quite intense, as you'd imagine. Um, it, was, uh, it was great to see them all. I was a bit starstruck by a few of them. I mean... Anyone that grew up in Queensland, when I grew up in Queensland, was Lisa Curry was royalty, absolute royalty. And there she was sitting next to me, who was pretty nuts. Got to take Audrey with me, which was lovely. And uh, we, went on a, we went on a game drive, as you do. It was pissing with rain and freezing uh, at the bottom end of a cyclone that was coming into Mozambique. But uh, we still got to see some incredible wildlife. And it really, um, you know... It really gave me a lift to see not only how incredible nature is, but also nature's desire to grow back 
and regenerate itself um, as to see where there was once a cattle ranch that had cleared all the land that 20, 30 years later bush can grow back and wild animals can return, uh, which is what the case of the, the game park that we went out to. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing and it don't want to sound too grim about it, but it did make me feel that, you know, no matter what humans do, no matter what humans do to the point where we will completely fuck up our planet for us to not be able to live on it, life will find a way. It might not be human life, but life will find a way and uh, things will go on long after we're gone. So that did make me feel kind of happy that even though humans might not be here, plenty of other things will. Sorry to be grim, Sorry. but it, it was kind of a positive for me. I'm not going to lie. It was kind of a positive for me. So let me tell you about my guest today. He's a really interesting cat. His name is Tim Daly. Tim Daly is the head honcho over at CMC, the 24-hour country music channel on the pay TV service in Australia called Foxtel. Tim grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and eventually made his way to Australia. That's a tale that he will share with you today. Tim was also my first ever producer in television way back in 1999. He was given the task of helping a young 25-year-old long-haired kid from Brisbane that had only been working in radio for the four years previous. He was in charge of helping that kid who'd never been on television look like he'd never been on television. Um... Look a little less like I'd never been on television, I should say. He, uh, Tim was the man that indoctrinated me, radicalized me into life down in Bondi Beach. He became my upstairs neighbor for a couple of years. Um, he and I uh, were very, very close for a while. I'm very grateful to know Tim, and I'm even more grateful that he took the time from his very busy work day to uh, schlep all the way out to the beach to talk to me. There's a long riff at the end of this conversation about where rock and roll went particularly in light of the Grammys just gone where it was a bit sad, really. Like The most relevant rock and roll band that they could find was Metallica, who put out their last really massive album in 1991, 25 years ago. So, uh, yeah, Tim and I talk a lot about that. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Um, Really quickly before I get to the show, thank you very much to everyone that's been sending their photos through, sending us a podsy that's just take a photo with your iPhone of whatever it is that you're looking at right now and send it to me, either uh, email, send us your email at gmail.com or tag me in Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter. It's fantastic to see where people are listening. I've got some really good ones this week. Um, maybe you're in Colorado Springs. Maybe you are someone that grew up with Tim and you're listening to this, so shoot me a pic from Colorado Springs. Maybe you work at NORAD now. Um, but enjoy this. This is a conversation, a bit of a chat about how a kid from Colorado Springs ended up in Australia via time hanging with Public Enemy to become one of the most important names in country music in Australia. This, my friends, is Tim Daly. How are you, Tim? I'm good. Thanks for coming around. I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> I'm so happy to see you. Thanks heaps, man. Thanks hmm. for coming by. We're doing an office move today, just shifting in the office at Foxtel. So it was a good day to do it because nothing's set up. I don't have my couch or anything. Your couch, the most important. Yeah. Couch, computer, all that sort of stuff. So it was a good day to do it. We'd be out of the office. I didn't know that when we actually booked this. Yeah? No. Nah. 
You are the first ever pr- television producer I ever had. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And I've, uh, somewhere, it's on a high eight, but I've actually got video footage of that very that first... First show. First night we were on air. Yeah. Uh, actually, the first day I met you, I think you walked home with me to that apartment in Kent Street and Bathurst Street. Yes, your temporary digs, which yeah, was yeah. like a marathon or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've got footage of you and uh, I was just barely 25. And you were 33? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. you were 33. 17, 17, it'll be 18 years. 18 years. 18 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Wow. I know. I was so scared. A lot's changed since then. But tell me about it. I've, I was so scared that day. I had no idea what to do. I didn't know what I was doing either. No, that's okay. <laughs> For that, first, that whole first year, I don't really remember. What I remember is um, we had drinks at the casino with Barry Chapman. Mm-hmm. And there was and that was massive hailstorm. Giant hailstorm. And that was it did damage right throughout Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing it and seeing it come down. April twelfth. And then we walked across the Yeah, you remember the day. Then we walked across the uh, Pyramont Bridge to your temporary digs. Yeah. Yeah. I'd already been producing the show for a couple of months and uh, Nathan Harvey was supposed to be the host of that show originally, and Ali Brunning was actually on the show. And then for some reason the hires up decided that she wasn't working, and I think they'd been in talks with you for a little while, and then they made that change. And I remember they asked me if I wanted to sack Allie, and I'm like, I didn't have anything to do with this. You do it. <laughs> I'm just the producer of the show. I didn't like. I didn't come to you and go. She's not working, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but you've always, uh, you've always been uh, someone that I looked up to, in, as far as this industry goes, because you. Uh, you would just fill my head full of stories of Colorado Springs and uh, growing up there and getting on the radio there and and then such incredible stories of, oh, and somehow Chuck D would get woven into the mix. <laughs> I always worry that those, I tell those stories too much because I, like, I forget that I tell them and then people roll their eyes and like, I've heard that story already. But I still think it's a pretty good story, so I just... But you've had... On. And then you've gone on to launch not one but two massive music channels in this country. Yeah. I, and I don't know how that happened either. I just... I think, you know, sometimes it's just right place, right time yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I did it. Yeah. Really. Well, you did. You have. <laughs> um you're great. You're luckily, from a, a, a part of history where people were pretty much almost as obsessed about documenting their their life as much as well as much as could be technologically possible at the time. Like there's heaps of photos of you as a kid, and heaps of photos of your parents yeah. as a kid. And I remember being privy to you uh, showing great pictures of the Daily Double. Your uh, yeah, my well, my you know, my dad was a musician. Growing up, and I think the reason I didn't become a musician was because I had to lug his amps up three stories at the stairs at the Elks Lodge. And I just said, this musician thing isn't for me. But I was always around, I was always around the music. And so it just seemed kind of a natural place to go. Your parents just, were a double act, right? Well, it was my, my, my dad and my stepmom. Your stepmom, that's yeah, right. So um, my dad always played in bands. He, he, he played in... Shakey's Pizza Parlor in Colorado Springs and, you know, they love a parade. So the Shakey's actually had their own sort of 
stage on the back of a truck, flatbed truck type of thing, and he used to do um, he used to he used to do that, and then we'd sit on the back of the truck, and we thought that was pretty cool being in the parade. And he worked in uh, he worked in a music store growing up, so uh, Johnny Smith Music. Did, I, I don't know if I ever told you about that story, but um, yeah, Johnny Smith was an amazing uh, guitar player and sort of the '50s and '60s jazz guitar player. Um, and he had a daughter who was disabled, uh, and as she got older, he he didn't want to tour as much. He didn't want to live in New York, and he decided he wanted to move to Colorado Springs. I don't know why he picked Colorado Springs, but he told the Gibson he had a signature guitar, the Gibson Johnny Smith guitar, and he told Gibson that uh, he would continue they could continue to use his name if they would give him some finance to start this music store. So it became kind of the band instrument supplier in Colorado Springs. And then probably I was maybe two or three years old or something, my dad became the manager of the music store and they um, repaired band instruments and they had a this basement downstairs that uh, they gave you know guitar lessons and that kind of stuff. So I was always, and then all the touring musicians used to come in. So people like Bert Convey and George Goble and Rosemary Clooney and all these sorts of people used to come into the music store because they all knew Johnny from New York. So I was just always around this big band music and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where the music origin started. Was, yeah, was your dad ever disappointed that you didn't take up an instrument? You know, it's. I, I don't think so. We always had a piano in the house. We always had guitars in the house, but I never felt like picking one up or, you know, I think, I think with music, you feel the muse and you feel the drive and you're interested in it or you're not. And what I've come to kind of learn over a period of time is either a year, I mean, there are musicians and there are shit sifters. I suppose I'm shit sifters. DJs. <laughs> I mean, there, there are people that have to listen to the music and whittle it down for people who don't have a huge interest in music. They yeah. like music, but so, you, you know, there, I, I suppose it's the messenger in a way. Yeah. It's the people who just bring the music to the people. I've been through Colorado Springs. Isn't it Colorado Springs where the atomic clock is? I don't know, but there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Like I grew up next to an army base. NORAD's there if you've ever seen war games. Oh, that's the Colorado Springs. Yeah, the Olympic Training Center's there. Of course, because so, it's 4,000, 8,000 feet or something. Uh, yeah, 6,000, something 6, like that. 6,000 feet. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Very, it's, you know, quite a conservative, you know, sort of place. Right, conservative as in... Politically conservative. Republican. Of, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got the Air Force Academy, you've got... Um, Fort Carson, Peterson Air Force Base. So lots of military there, and it just kind of sort of leans that way a little bit. So, uh -huh. yeah. So kids you went to school with, their, their moms and dads were involved in the military and that sort yeah. of thing? Yeah, well, I went to Fountain Fort Carson High School. So Fort Carson, uh, all the kids that lived on, on base came to uh, my high school. So, um, yeah, that was that multicultural thing. So I grew up, there was, you know, you had the cowboys. It was a bit like... Um, Dazed and Confused, the movie. So, you, you know, you had uh, the cowboys and then you had the potheads who always used to hang out by the gate smoking. And uh, then you had, you know, the kids from all over the country whose parents were stationed at Fort Carson. So there was a lot of racially mixed uh, people there. So you'd have, um, you know, USGIs that had been stationed in Vietnam or in Korea and they'd, they'd find their partners there. So... I went to school with the kids that were, you know, half white, half Vietnamese or half white and, you know, 
um, you know, a lot of black kids. And so, you know, we just had a real sort of cultural mix there, which was, I think, kind of unusual at mm. the time. And did you, uh, I guess, you know, glean any musical influences off those kids? Well, yeah. And that's, you know, I suppose I had that musical background from the parents. Um, but then having all the black kids in school, that's where I first heard Rapper's Delight and all that sort of stuff. And uh, kids bringing their boom boxes to school. So, yeah, I was, you know, fully into the hip hop and the rap stuff and really getting into that when I was probably in the eighth grade would have been, you know, 1980 or something like that. So that's what you know, I just and I love that whole party sound and the music. Listen to all of that. How long until you managed to get on a mic? How long until you got on the radio? We, we had a uh, vocational program at our school, which was a bit like TAFE. So in year 11, you could go to uh, the community college and you could do auto body repair or you could do, um, you know, dental or you could, you know, there was all these sorts of things you could do. Well, they just also happened to have a broadcasting. So, um, so I pestered and pestered and they let me into that program. So year 11, year, year 12 of high school, I'd, do, I'd go to high school and I'd have one class. And then I'd hop on the bus and I'd go to college for the morning and then I'd come back to high school and have another class. So, um, yeah, it was probably 82 or 83 that I started doing my The Soul Show on KEPC. And um, it was kind of a rap show, but I couldn't find enough material to fill it. Can you believe that? <laughs> you, want, you want to do a rap show, but you can't find enough material to fill a rap show. Well, it was a brand new sort of music, though. It was. So, we, you know, I ended up filling it up with Ohio Players and Midnight Star and the Daz Band and James Brown and, you know, probably a lot of the stuff that over the next 10 or 20 years that hip-hop artists would sample. Yeah. You know, without realising it, you just kind of throw all that kind of stuff. Prince's first two albums, so three albums really. Yeah. Yeah. But this is also a time of uh, writing away to be on a mailing list and being in fan clubs and... Well, that came a little bit later after... So I did that in high school and then uh, I moved to Grand Junction in Western Colorado I had pretty much, the time I graduated from high school, I also had my associate's degree, my two-year degree in radio and TV broadcasting. So we also did TV there as well. And then I went to the college radio station in Grand Junction, and um, I, I, wanted to, I, wanted to, I did a show called The Beat of the City. Yeah. Some of this is on my SoundCloud page. Some of it's quite funny. I decided to put, when I upload that stuff, it's just all warts and all. I don't even, like I did one thing where I introduced Culture Club and I go, or uh, no, it was the Eurythmics. Because, you know, couldn't find enough rap material to play, so I had to fill. So I'd say, um, he looks like a girl and she looks like a boy, and that's really weird. You know, like I've got some of this weird stuff. But um, when I went to KMSA, the college radio station in Grand Junction, I wanted to do the show called Beat in the City. And again, I still couldn't find enough rap material to play. So I used to scour Billboard magazine and CMJ, and I used to try to find, you know, new labels. And stuff, and that's when I used to I used to write away for, for records. You know, back then, you know, making long distance phone calls was a dollar a minute. So you, you know, it was before mobile phones and stuff. So, um, so I you know I'd write away, and then um, I'd get Rockmaster Scott, or I'd get uh, you know, Public Enemy, or you know whatever it happened to be. Actually, it was before Public Enemy, but I would, you know that's how I would start filling that library with stuff. I got Cookie Puss from the Beastie Boys, and 
So I slowly started feeling that. So you're saying I'm like I, I run a radio station show in, in Western Colorado and I'm, you know, I'd really. Yeah, and I do a three hour show on Tuesday afternoons from one to four. And I play a lot of A, B, and C. And do you have any records you can send me? And then sometimes, and I would send out dozens and dozens of these letters. Handwritten? Um, yeah, some handwritten. And I think we had an IBM Selectric and I would type some of them and I might send a, you know, like a look, you know, on the letterhead or something. Oh, fancy. Know? Yeah. Um, and then um, that's an electric typewriter for people who are wondering, which is basically like <laughs> a, a word processor that has actual paper. It's like a printer and a computer. Never mind. Well, these were actually it was pretty cool typewriter because if you made a mistake, you could just up with your right pinky, you could hit a button, and it would be the corrector button, and it would back up, and then you could type the same letter again, and it would white it out. So you could so it had a, like a correcting, and that was pretty amazing in yeah. the typewriter days. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. You had to put the uh, other tape in. It was a different the lifter offer a tape. Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. So there's lifter upper tape or cover upper tape. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um so that was sort of, you know, eighty four. And then in one of those magazines I saw the new music seminar was was coming up and right around that time I'd gotten a letter back from Carl Ryder at Spectrum City and they sent me Butch Cassidy's Funk Bunch and Spectrum City Lies, twelve inch singles, which I still have. And um, I decided I wanted to go to this new music seminar in 1985, so I just sent these guys a letter and I said, hey, um, I do this show and I want to come to the new music seminar. Can I stay with you guys? <laughs> and they said yes. So um, September of 85, I've, I flew to New York for the first time. I was 19. Um, and it was pretty amazing. I'd never really been on a... You know, I'd flown a couple of times with my parents when I was kids, but I'd certainly never been to the East Coast or anything. So I fly into LaGuardia Airport, and um, Hank and Keith Shockley pick me up in their Oldsmobile 88. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then they take me out to Roosevelt, New York, um, and I stayed with their parents. Um, and I did the same thing in 86. Um, and I stayed in, in Long Island, and, and, um, and I hung out at the Spectrum City Studios, with them, and I remember, you know, you'd walk in, and on the left-hand side, there'd be somebody with a drum machine doing beats or whatever, and um, and um, and so yes, yeah, I stayed with them in '85. Went to the new music seminar and had my little cassette recorder, and I got IDs for my radio show, and and um, you know, at the time, like I didn't even take a camera, you know, you just don't even didn't even think at the time. It was just I just want to go experience this music and. Um, you know, I met some of the people that I'd been playing on my radio show, African Bambata and um, LL Cool J was about 17 at the time. And um, yeah, little did I, I didn't even know, like the Spectrum City guys, I didn't even know who they were. Um, but now I go into their studio and it's, and Dr. Dre, who used to host, it was the original concept guys, all the guys that were at WBAU on Long Island used to sort of hang around in there, so it was um, original concept. Dr. Dre went on to do uh, Yo MTV Rap. So not Dr. Dre, NWA, Dr. Dre. No, not world class wrecking you, world class wrecking crew. Dr. No. Dr. Dre, the other Dr. Dre, the other Dr. Dre. Yes, um, I actually still have the world class wrecking crew album, Surgery, which was one of his first twelve inch singles. But that was West Coast rap. This was East Coast rap. But I remember talking with him at the time that you know that was an issue. There were two Dr. Dre's. Who's this West Coast Dr. Dre? 
we're talking about. He's a little richer than the East Coast Dr. Dre these days. But um, <laughs> just a little. Yeah, who's Dr. Dre, East Coast Dr. Dre, Andre Brown, his health isn't so good these days, which is a shame, diabetes and stuff. But um, yeah, so I, I would hang out. We hung out there. And then, and I remember I had a pass to the New Music Seminar to get in. And they, those guys didn't have enough money to make a pass. So they wanted to like take a copy of my pass and then laminate it. They wanted to forge my pass to the new music seminar. So they had a friend, you know, up the road someplace or in Brooklyn or something, who had a color printer, wow. which was tech back then. And we were gonna. They, I can't remember if we were successful or not. But um, so this is, you know, and so these guys, the Spectrum City guys, ended up being Public Enemy, Original Concept, all that, um, you know, that sort of, you know, crew out there. And I just remember they had a blackboard and the walls were just covered with vinyl and they had decks there. But I remember on the blackboard, they, were, they had the lyrics for Public Enemy Number 1. So I remember coming back after that. I was there for maybe 10 days or something. And I remember coming back and being so excited and talking on my radio show that, you know, this Public Enemy, I just met these guys from Public Enemy and, and they're writing a song called Public Enemy Number 1. And, you know, I think they're, they're about ready to be signed by Def Jam and, um, you know, talking about it on the radio. And in Western Colorado at the time, there was nobody who had any idea what I was talking about. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, but yeah. it paved the way for, for so much of what you would go on to do in your career. Yeah. That I mean, kind of curiosity, that kind of... There was something about these people from New York City. There was something about your letter that went, okay, we'll let this kid come and stay in our house. Well, it's been tremendously inspiring, you know, all that time. Like, like you look back and you're just like, oh, well, I was onto something then. Well, my ears actually were kind of all right, you know? And then I went back, I think it was the following year, I went back and I ended up going to the attorney's office with Hank Shockley and Chuck... And I remember sitting in the lobby of their attorney's office, and Chuck said to me, "This sounds. This is sound, you've probably heard this before, but he said, if you don't own the master, the master owns you.'" <laughs> <laughs> They're talking about the master tapes. Yeah, but I think there was a deeper meaning in it. Of course, it yeah. was when he's talking. Yeah, about it. yeah, yeah. But yeah, there were just always just. I remember walking down the street, like we went to White Castle or something. It's a and, burger. It's a hamburger place. Yeah, and. Um, and I remember a cop kind of cop car kind of driving by a couple of times, and I remember asking him, you know, what's what's with the cop car? And they go, he's he's doing that because of you. You're you're in this you're in this neighborhood. You're walking. It's the white guy walking with a bunch of black guys in Roosevelt. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're this kid from. Yeah, I was a little scrawny white kid from Colorado who had you know I had no idea what neighborhood I was in, whether it was good or bad or tough or not or. Yeah. Or whatever, and that's around the same time that I met Flavor Flav before his teeth teeth were capped. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I did that three years in a row, and by the time I went back in '87, I couldn't stay with Hank and Keith's mum anymore because they were all, you know, starting to get famous and all that kind of stuff. So I stayed with uh, the record company promo guy Bill Stephanie, who was the head of promo at Def Jam at the time. Now I remember, you know, I went to the Def Jam's offices that, you know, in the early days and. Uh, yeah, just saw so much stuff back then. Saw Houdini and uh, Salt and Pepper. Um, I saw the DJ and the rap battles at the New Music Seminar in those years. And um, uh, uh, probably one of the best ones is meeting Jello Biafra at the New Music Seminar, and he did an ID for me. He said, um, 
It's the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. Yeah. Hi, this is Jello Biafra. You're listening to Tim Daly on After Midnight. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get the irony at the time. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that you were just there. That, that, you know, there's... I'm always I'm always fascinated by, you know, and you've seen it when you cross paths with people that have similar things that you did when you were a kid. When you, it's like when I met um, Ash London for the first time, who's uh, she's now on uh, Today FM doing Ash London Live. Um, she was on the Loop before that. She did Hot Thirty for a long time. But when I first met her, within three minutes, I'm like, oh, you, it's you. You're the one. You're it. You've got it. Hmm. You just know. You just know when you meet that that young person who might only be, you know, 18, 19, and you just get it. You're like, okay, you're switched on. Come on, you're, you're in a circle already because Somehow. you just have this thing yeah. um, about you. You may not have all of the technical skills to deliver it yet, but what sits at the core of it is absolutely there. So let's go. Yeah, for me it was just a, a love of the music and I suppose I just wanted to be in the fan club, you know, but it just kind of one thing led to another, being in radio and going, oh, well, if I send a letter or I make this phone call and meet this person. But um, it was you going out of your way making it happen, that's the thing. Yeah, and running up a whole bunch of credit card debt to get there and get back. <laughs> but you weren't, waiting, you weren't waiting for it to come to you. No. Well, I mean, you couldn't in Colorado, you know. I mean, if I, if I had something to say to somebody who lived in Colorado or Nebraska or whatever else, it would be, you know, or Bathurst or Dubbo. Mm. If, that's, if you want to work in the media or if you want to do that kind of stuff, you've got to get out of that small town for a bit just to get some perspective on how things work. Go back to the small town if you like it. I'd be mm. quite happy living in a small town now, but I think, you know, you move to a place like Sydney or L.A. or someplace like that, and you kind of go, okay, this is how they're doing it at the top level, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, was it at this point that you were living in the Destructo Palace? <laughs> yeah, with Rick the Destroyer. Um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, about, yeah, that was about 80, 87. And I'd moved out of, the, out of my dad's place because um, he lived, you know, 10, 15 miles away from where I was going to uni. And it was a bit of a drive every day. So uh, I moved on campus for a little while. And then I moved into a, um, into a, it was a one-bedroom flat with a loft, and my, my mate Rick the Destroyer moved in with me, and he slept on the couch. And, uh, well, actually, that was the second place. I'd lived in a two-bedroom place, but I couldn't afford the rent. I think it was uh, $180 a month <laughs> at the time. And uh, my original flatmate had moved out, so I moved into a one-bedroom place in, in, the, in the same complex. And when I moved out, I cleaned the oven and did all the cleaning and stuff, but they still kept my deposit. Linda, <laughs> the property manager, kept my deposit. And so, I, so when I moved into the next place, I go, what the hell? She's going she's gonna to keep our deposit, so let's just fuck this place up. <laughs> so we, um, we used to torch flies on the wall with a match and a can of bug spray, like little globs of fire would land on the wall. We had a big plastic uh, sheet that we hung in the kitchen and all of our bottle tops we would flick into this plastic sheet and there were just thousands of them by the time we moved out. I think it collapsed at one point. 
And, you know, we didn't have any money, so we just had odds and ends. I had a shopping trolley at one point, just, you know, it, it basically just trashed the point. It's just, I suppose it's just that one place that everybody has that, mm. that you just kind of kind of trash the girlfriends would come over and be disgusted and then they'd they'd actually clean the house for us because we wouldn't you know just brown shit in the you know like you know on the toilet and you know it was disgusting that's what i 19 20 years old yeah that's that's, that's pretty much what my house do. looked like when i was when i was 20 yeah i remember you playing me because uh his name's not just rick the destroyer he's a voiceover guy yeah rick hayden and um he does the speedway ads yeah he's, he works at moffat productions and in, in, in houston he after he left Grand Junction, shortly after I did, he moved down there and uh, he got this job and he does a lot of the big voice stuff. So um, dragways and, you, you know, car sales and stripping joints and all sorts of stuff. But, a, you know, great. He was, we met when we were working at the Sirloin Stockade at the Steakhouse and he was a butcher and I was a busboy <laughs> and uh, we just hit it off and loved to drink beer together. And uh, then when I was working at one of the radio stations in Grand Junction, uh, they needed somebody to work overnights or something. And I said, oh, my friend, the butcher's got a good voice. And that's how he got into wow. doing that. Yeah. So he ended up working at the radio station that I worked at, the commercial radio station. And um, It's one of those terrifying, the Saturday night. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost cliche, but he's so good at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah my, and it's not just You're the 32nder. It. It's the American radio ads. It's doing for a minute. Yeah. So he has to keep re repeating it. Once again. Yeah. Children uh, you know, are the, 16 free. The echo. Yeah. Speedway, speedway, speedway. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, all that, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Have you got any of them on your SoundCloud? Uh, I don't have his, but a bunch of his are on, on YouTube and different places and yeah. stuff. Yeah. I think oh, I, I think I might have one or two of them that he sent through over the years. Yeah. Now, you were the f I've been... Not yet been to Colorado when I first met you, but I've been to Colorado a bunch of times since. It's one of my favourite places in the States. It's absolutely glorious. And I remember uh, with glee driving through the Lincoln Tunnel that you used to tell me about. Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower Tunnel. Yeah. Well, Eisenhower one way. Uh, oh, it, Eisenhower one way, Johnson, Johnson the, the other. back, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's one of those things. 11,000 feet. Yeah, Above sea level. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things I loved about living in America. Was at the time, America was just like, there's a mountain in the way of our superhighway. What should we do? Yeah. We'll go fucking through it. <laughs> yeah. Know? And they just build this. Well, it used to be a Loveland Pass and you'd have to go right over and then in winter there would be too much snow. And so, that, like, they pretty much – there was so much traffic going through. It's a major freight corridor. So they had to build that. Yeah. You know, build but that's great. That build that just, tunnel. That they just did. Well – when I lived in Grand Junction, our sort of our the main venue, like we'd have to go see shows in Denver. We'd go to Red Rocks and and those sorts of places to see shows. And um, yeah, we'd we'd drive um, over to Eisenhower and stop there, and then and then we'd stop at Vale too. Yeah. So Vale and Eisenhower both about eleven thousand feet. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what the altitude did, but. We came out of it alive. That's a well. It's always good when, as a young man, you get to survive being a young man. That's right. It's a dangerous yeah. thing. Yeah, it's a dangerous <laughs> yeah. thing to do. Uh, and at one point, you met a, a beautiful Australian lady who uh, who stole your heart. Uh, well, that came a little bit came a little bit later. Yeah, um, I was working in in mostly in TV at that point. I was at, at KREX in Grand Junction, working as a TV director, and you know, went on. Uh, 
I was on going on holidays, going on vacation. My brother was going to UNLV in Las Vegas at the time, and my friend Bonnie, who I'd went to um, community college with in Colorado Springs, was living in Los Angeles. So I was going to drive to Las Vegas and spend the night with my brother, and then on to um, Los Angeles. And when I got to my brother's place, my friend Bonnie in LA rang me up and said, "My new Australian flatmate's actually in Las Vegas tonight. You should hook up before you come to LA." And um, I think my brother was doing uh, finals or something at uni, so he didn't want to go out. So I, I got her number. She was staying at the Excalibur, and then I, I rang her up. There was no answer. And then a couple hours later, I, I rang, and she answered. And I go, oh, blah, blah, blah. I told her the story. And she said, yeah, well, come on around. So I went around to the Excalibur and, and went to her room, and, and she was there. And then I went, wow. And then we hung out all that night. And drove to the Grand Canyon the next day, and then we had adventures for another six weeks, and then we got married on New Year's Eve, six weeks later. Yeah. That's so good. How about that? That's so good. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. So three of our, two of our Australian friends were in in Los. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Vegas at the same time. I think that's one of the reasons she was she was there, and I had a rental car i had a convertible mustang and we decided the next after going out all night getting well we got thrown out of the golden nugget for pashing then we went to um we decided we wanted to go to the grand canyon the next day without realizing it was like a five-hour drive from las vegas so we got to the grand canyon and it was very cold it was november and we did that thing it was a bit like vacation we stood there and we went up oh, spectacular for about five minutes then we got in the car and drove back <laughs> type of thing um and then i went to los angeles and we hung out for a few more days and then i was i was quite smitten um drove back to colorado i remember listening to the spin doctors in the car i was kind of uplifting at the moment i was really into blues traveler at the time so spin doctors was kind of in that same space i got back to grand junction went to work krex i was there for a few days and then i got fired from my job I still don't really know why I got fired. Um, maybe it was because I was using the office copy machine to make copies of a bunch of pro-marijuana literature, maybe. <laughs> and look at paid off. <laughs> yeah, well, I was doing all the, all the legalize it and running rallies in Grand Junction at the time. But, um, uh, and I just, I just kind of took it as a sign. I just went, okay, uh, this makes it really easy. I'm, I'm going to go to LA and I'm going to be with this girl. 
So I didn't have enough money for another rental car, so I loaded up my 75 Olds Cutlass with pretty much all my belongings um, that I could fit into the car. So that was like vinyl and photos and clothes. I didn't really have much. Um, and I left everything else in my house. I left my bed and my couch and my dishes and everything, and I just left. <laughs> and I drove to, um, drove to Los Angeles. I got there... It would have been maybe second week of December or something like that. And then we hung out for a week. Um, I'm leaving out heaps of the story here. but uh, um, And then we hung out for a week and then we drove to Las Vegas on Christmas Eve. And, um, and then we got married on New Year's Eve. And then four days later she came back to Australia and I spent the next six months getting my visa. I left out two automobile crashes um, and a, a few other bits. <laughs> but you made it. Yeah, yeah. Dude, did anyone did, did you get married by an Elvis or anything? What's the Las you know, Vegas? What's the quick Las always, Vegas wedding like? That's always the the question that we get when we we say that. But I don't think there was an Elvis impersonator wedding person at that time. Uh-huh. But I was unemployed and had no money. I, um, I think my my mom had you know sent me two hundred bucks or something to get to Los Angeles or something. But yeah, we basically had no money. Um, she didn't have a job at the time, and neither did I. I think I always say she married me on spec. No, we just went to the JP. Um, We went to the JP, um, and uh, my brother just drove us downtown, and that was about, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon or something. We went to Popeye's Fried Chicken for the reception. Excellent. Then went back to his place and kind of like, oh, shit, we're married. Then we got on the bus to go downtown, uh, you know, for the, the celebrations. While we were on the bus, a guy pulled out a gun sitting across from us, and it was that, like, anybody messes with me tonight, and he's flashing his gun, you know? And we just pulled the string and went, oh, we'll get off, we'll get the next bus. Um, and then we went, went down on New Year's Eve, and, you know, back then, Fremont Street, it was before the Fremont Street experience and all that kind of stuff, and you could still drive down Fremont Street, and they would close it off specifically for New Year's Eve, and it was just a giant mosh pit. So we, um, I'd done it a few times before with my brother when he was, he, because he was going to uni there, so we dro- I drove down a couple of years before. Um, but they would, they would close off the street. Well, we, it was before mobile phones, so, and we knew that people would get lost. There might be a group of 10 of us or something, and we'd go, okay, if anybody gets lost, we'll just meet here outside. Well, we'll meet here at the Golden Nugget, you know, outside. And so we told Michelle that, my, my new wife, my new bride, and we said, top of the, if you get lost, you get separated, just go to, outside the Golden Nugget and we'll meet you. Well, sure enough, we lost her after a couple of hours, nine or 10 o'clock or something. And we'd go back at the top of every hour. She was never there. I think it was about, you know, in the meantime, my friend Bobby showed up. She was working as an exotic dancer at the time and she brought one of her stripper friends. So I ended up playing blackjack with her. So I always tell people that my wedding night, I lost my wife, but I ended up with the strippers, but it was about three o'clock in the morning or something, and we still hadn't found Michelle, and, and my brother went, um, maybe she's inside, because our meeting spot was just outside, and sure enough, we walk inside, she's sitting, sitting at the bar, and she had told the bartender that she'd just gotten married but lost her husband. But the bartender, of course, thought that I had died, <laughs> so he was just feeding her free drinks, <laughs> and so uh, we walk in, and she turns around, and she goes, you I think she had started believing that I was dead as well. So. 
Wow. And then four days later, I took her to the airport, and I didn't see her for six months. Wow. (laughs) Wow. At what point did, how how did the, because I remember you you came to Brisbane when you came to Australia, Mm. didn't you? Why, why Brisbane and not Sydney? Well, no, I came to Sydney and I lived in Sydney and I, I just worked a few little odd jobs mm. here and there. I worked in some telemarketing and um, I actually worked at Aveda, you know, the, the hair and makeup and skincare oh, yeah. place. Yeah. Um, because I moved here and I couldn't find my hydrating lotion. And so I called Minneapolis, their headquarters, and I said, where can I find it? And they said, well, we don't sell it yet. In Australia, but this new mob is selling it. So, yeah. So, anyway, so I helped set up Aveda here, <laughs> their first store, the Queen Victoria building. So I did all those sorts of odd jobs, and then I was just sending out tapes and resumes to radio stations yeah. and trying to get a job in radio or TV. And then um, um, Paul James, a guy named Paul James, um, was program director at Triple M in Brisbane, and he he came down. He kind of like what he saw I have no idea why and he gave me the job as assistant PD and music director at Triple M in Brisbane so that was uh, that was 94 so that was about a year and a bit after I moved here and so I had my first radio job how about that Mm. and this was after like guys you know guys in Wollongong and Wagga and places like that were saying mate you'll never get a job here you know because of my American accent Mm -hmm. which I was quite taken aback by but uh, and then I felt like going ha ha (laughs) Brad March actually did that to me. I went in to see him at Two Day FM, and he's like, oh, he listened to my tape for about 10 seconds. Oh, you know, I think you need to go get more experience in Bathurst. Uh Yeah. So then when I was at Triple M in Brisbane, I thought I was pretty pretty cool. (laughs) I can't. We were in radio at the same time. I wonder if I I was in a Triple M building um, Um, when you were there. Triple M and B105 were in two different places at back, the time, yeah. back then. So I was working there at the time of the merger between mm. the Triple M owners and Osteria. Mm. So uh, Rachel Oaks Ash mm. was doing nights. I remember her. Yeah. I worked for her. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, she was there, and Rob Logan was the boss mm-hmm. of B105 at the time. Yeah, and that's all I remember at B105. Uh, John Kennedy was at Triple M, and Shirley Strawn was our Breakfast and, on our breakfast right. team, which was pretty cool. Like the late Shirley Strawn, former lead singer of the Skyhooks. Yeah, yeah. I was had no idea who he was at the time, but I knew by the time by the end. Yeah. But he was like he was great. He would come in and he'd go, "Oh, Tim, you got to listen to this," and he'd play me some you know Skyhooks, or he'd play me. I remember he played me uh, "Can't You Hear Me Knocking" by the Rolling Stones. Just you know stuff that he loved. He'd just pop into the office and play it for me but that was a great experience i just got to know you know a lot about the australian media and that kind of stuff we got to be uh you know you're closer to a proper cowboy than i am considering where you grew up but we got to be somewhat of somewhat of cowboys working at channel d when it first started mm. it was a pretty loose pretty wild operation yeah, well, just what's amazing now are the budget, were the budgets then, which we had no idea. We at the time we just thought it was you know fairly normal. When I started working with you, we did um, three hours a day live, five days a week, um, and it was the, I mean the format was basically two or three clips break, two or three clips break, two or three clips break. But we had a full crew, three camera guys, three or four camera guys, and a couple of sounders and a director and an auto cue and all that kind of stuff, plus paying for the audio. I, you know, I don't know what that cost because I wasn't across the budgets, but I know we can't do that kind of thing now. 
Um, you know, the budget for that show must have been ten grand or a week, or twenty grand a week, or something. You know, um, it was. It really was the cowboy days of pay TV. I mean, you know, News Corp at the time, Foxtel, Telstra, they were just so keen to get people into pay TV after um, pay TV, you know, had been delayed so long by political maneuvering and Kerry Packer and so on. And so they were just making, you know, Foxtel, I think it was June of that year, Foxtel hit 500,000 subscribers and we did that show in Melbourne with right. Killing Heidi and yeah. Area 7 and, and that kind of stuff. So 500,000 subscribers, but our budgets were just insane mm. to be able to do that. I mean, I the year after we did By Demand, um, I produced the hip-hop show and the heavy metal show and... If there was a little hip-hop show going on in Brisbane or something, I'd just go to the production manager and go, I need to book a crew and flights in a com. I want to cover this thing in Brisbane next week. And, you know, now it's business case and yeah. forward planning and, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Like, we didn't really, I don't think, have any understanding of how lucky we were at the time. I remember that 500,000 subscriber show the night before uh, we'd gone out at the Crown Casino, mm. got kicked out of some bar for dancing on tables. <laughs> And I remember the next day being so hungover, so completely munted. We did, it was the 500,000 subscribers' house that we did the party. That's right, in their backyard. In their backyard with this full outside broadcast. And I remember being there and at some point after the dress rehearsal, you came over to me and said, if you could look a little less completely hungover in front of a CEO, that would be pretty good right about now. <laughs> I was clearly just, yeah. just sweating and stinking of vodka. Yeah, I remember – well, you, I don't remember that, but I remember hitting a number on roulette twice at yeah, 30, that's right. 35 to 1, which makes you think it's really easy and it's not. Yeah. Now I so just, I think I put, only when you say that do I remember it. I think I put $10 down twice. So for a $20 investment, I think I made $700. Or and then we drank that. Yeah. 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 So. We got about drinking it very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, um, I won't mention names, but that first year in, in telly was actually, it was actually quite hard for mm -hmm. me because I'd never been around the kind of personalities at the time that had made that kind of, had that kind of television. Um, We've talked a lot about how you went from one thing to the next to the next to the next to the next, but how did you learn to deal with um, people along the way um, that were difficult and, you know, how, how did you learn to start playing that? You know, I've never, I still haven't figured it out, yeah. to be honest. You just try to be, I think you just try to be as honest as you can and, like, you, you try to be kind like, that's the first thing. You try to be kind, you try to be honest, but if that doesn't work, sometimes people need to be told. Right. You know, that's kind of the approach. I think a lot of it's just just luck. I mean, I, I had various people uh, around that time stabbing me in the back wanting my job. Um, and you just hope that the people that are higher ups and around can actually see that that's what's actually sort of going on uh -huh. you know there's always going to be jealousies and insecurities and and that kind of stuff and you just i think you just ultimately you just focus you just try to focus on the job and trying to do the right thing and you try not to participate in the negative aspects of stuff and that's been that way pretty much all the way through i mean i've been at, at foxtel for almost 20 years now and i've run across that at various times and you just 
you just try to work your way through it, I think. Yeah. I don't think there's any secret. Try to be kind to people. That's ultimately. a secret. Because <laughs> I, I didn't. I tried to fight it with whatever it was. Yeah. And it, I, had, I was completely underskilled. I had, you know, no idea how to do any of it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes things were said to me, like, you don't have any skills in this area or you're not very good, and you just think, what the, what the hell are you talking about? Like, you, you don't know what you're talking about, person A or mm. person B. Um, and then you, I suppose, uh, you, you go home and you have a whinge and a moan and <laughs> you have a drink and you just kind of... <laughs> You just kind of try to try to carry on yeah. through. I remember that that first year, I used to wake up having nightmares that I was spitting my teeth out. I was grinding hmm. my teeth so hard at night when I slept. I was spitting my molars out. Oh, it was wild times. Yeah, you, apparently we inter, we invented on that show putting the internet on TV. Yes, we did. Which I had no idea. Yeah, we were the first people. <laughs> we were the first people to do that. It was that first. It was the second show. Yeah, I remember saying to my our director, a technical director, we had the live chat room going on on the laptop. It was like on an set. IRC type of it thing. It was an IRC chat. Yeah. And I said to my director, are you able to take a feed from this laptop? And he said, yeah. Let's I'll put it up on TV. And I said, well, can I talk to the director? I said, can we put this, can we put this to line when I start talking about the chat? Can you put this to line? He said, yeah, sure. And away we went. How did we do that? We just, <laughs> we just did. We See, that's the did. kind of thing we, you know, there was so little direction from above. It was just like, here's the show, run with it. Yeah. It's not like we had air check sessions or whatever. Well, the direction from above was that um, Barry Chapman, who was a, a, a great of the Australian broadcasting industry who ran 2SM when it was the greatest radio station in the country and took Triple J National and did a bunch of other things. He also launched, uh, was, was working at Channel V at the time. Barry famously went into that studio and says, I want to go live to where? They say, we can't go live to where. He goes, then why the fuck is there an on-air button right there? <laughs> yeah. Just hit it and we'll go yeah. live. And that's how they did it. And so we were working for a guy that was just like, just go ahead. Just well, go ahead and do it. King of big, big ideas, Barry. He never knew how to make it happen, but he would just say, make it happen. Think big. Yeah. He invented the music bus and yeah. a lot of the best things that we all, the, a lot of the great activations that we did back then were... Were sort of just a brainchild of Barry, and then he would just he'd go play golf while we figured out how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> go and silver back out on the golf course with, <laughs> yeah. with his mates in the industry. Yeah. Uh, uh, and speaking of which, he was he was the one who started identifying the the market need for uh, more channels, and so it came to you. It was called Music Max back then. Yeah. Well, they knew they wanted to do a, more of an adult channel because back then Channel V had. Uh, Rewind, Maynard hosted that and I think Foxtel kind of went we need something that's a bit more in the VH1 back mm. when VH1 played music and um, and I had I'd done a year with you and then I produced the heavy metal and the hip hop show and then for a short period I was music director at Channel V, I think Dean Dejas who was the program director at the time had left to go back to radio for, for a spell and then they um, and then they came to me around that time and said, um, "Can you can you help get this this channel on the air?" So I put Max Music Max at the time on the air. It was a very very challenging time because they didn't know what they wanted it to be. So I thought it should be a little bit more like it as I suppose today, which is a little bit more adult but contemporary. Um, the, 
the boss at XYZ at the time was Patrick Delaney. I think he had a view that it should be a bit more 70s and 80s. Barry Chapman, I think, felt it should be more retro. But it became pretty clear once we started putting it together that there's a limited amount of material from the 70s and 80s, and it gets stale fast. So if you haven't seen Duran Duran or Culture Club video clips for a while, they're amazingly refreshing and cool to see. But if you play them every four or five days, they get they get tired quickly. So I, I kind of thought, well, we need to be kind of be moving down this Coldplay, Pert, Pete Murray, that kind of way. So there was a lot of a lot of conflict in the early days. And you know, you talk about the political skills to make stuff happen. I wasn't able to get my point of view across in a way that they could buy in. So. Uh, it was shortly after I left to put Country Music Channel on the air that Dean Dejas came back to the business and he had the skills to make it happen. And right. probably a year year after I left Max, it it kind of went that way. Right. Um, and it like it was where I thought it should be, and I was quite excited about it. The only thing I didn't like was the fact that they lost the music out of the Max. It should have always been called Music Max because people still call it Music Max. It hasn't been Music Max for I don't know twelve years or something. People still call it that. I think that's the only mistake they made along the way. But you know, that's part of the evolution of that yeah. that channel. So. And so, what when they wanted to make a country music channel, they went all oh, Tim's done it before. Uh, I was. It wasn't that. Some. Well, I suppose it was that a little bit. It was uh, CMT Music Country was the country feed, uh, primarily of interest to Austar at the time, the regional pay TV uh, provider in Australia, and due to. Uh, corporate sales and so on, they pulled their signal out of Australia and the call center at All Star started getting lots of phone calls from irate fans, we want our country music. And so then they came to us and said, we need a country music channel and fast. That was in uh, middle of March of '02, and we had it on the air on May 1st. So I had six weeks to get it on the air. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then um, we couldn't be on Foxtel at the time because they didn't have the bandwidth, so we were an all-star only channel, so I couldn't be based at Foxtel, so I moved into the Weather Channel office in North Sydney. So for the first three years of the channel, I was just kind of, it was really cowboy back then, and we just was able to, we were able to make lots of mistakes and just kind of build it organically. Because you're out from under the... Yeah, well, I didn't have any bosses. I technically at that time reported to Bruce Mann, who was um, head of marketing at All-Star, and then he later became the boss at XYZ. Um, at, uh, networks. Um, so they were just happy that it was on the air and that it was cheap. They were just like, it's cheap. We're not getting calls to the call center from irate country fans. Mm. And um, and I just, I found over, you know, as I started doing that and started going to Tamworth and the Gimpy Master and doing, going to things like field days at Wimmera and uh, Henty and, you know, these country towns, I found that because of my sort of small town background in the US, I was quite comfortable in that environment. And then I just found that the the artists were great to work with and I'm still doing it, believe what, it or not. What's the, what's the misconception in, uh, what's the misconception about Australia and country music? Well, the misconception about country music is that it's a lesser form of music compared to everything else. Um, that it's, you know, twangy and it's for people missing teeth and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you still fight that perception a lot. Um, Australia is a big country, but most of the people live in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth. So 
uh, and not as many people that you don't have the population base like you do in the U.S. So, you know, in the U.S., you have country radio stations right through the entire place, but there's very little country in the metro areas here. So it's very hard to break that. You know, people just, they always go, oh, I like all kinds of music except country. Mm. But, you know, I'll, I'll go to the sushi train at the Castle Towers and uh, they'll be playing Little Big Town and Lady Antebellum and these sorts of acts, and you'll, you'll see people tapping their foot. But if you interview them outside and go, do you like country music? And they go, oh, no, I don't like country music. And I go, well, what if I told you you were just tapping your foot to it? People don't know what country music is these days, mm. like in metro Australia, with maybe the exception of Brisbane a little bit, because they've got 98.9 radio up there, and there's a little bit more, um, you know, sort of country music. But... Uh, you know, country music really, I joke sometimes that country music is the new 80s rock. It's, <laughs> it's, if you look at what was popular in the late 80s, early 90s on Top 40 Radio, you would hear Springsteen, Tom Petty, Mellencamp, Brian Adams, you know, uh, Mr. Mister, even Pink Floyd, that kind of stuff. So, but you don't hear a lot of that kind of stuff on Top 40 Radio. It's really gone into kind of manufactured pop and R&B and urban and that kind of thing. So you might hear a little bit of Coldplay or a bit of Ed Sheeran. But there's not a lot of that kind of guitar-driven type of, type of music. And that audience and that kind of artistry, that kind of music has moved into the country world. So even people like Steven Tyler are making country records because what they do is actually more in tune with country than it is with the pop or the rock world. And rock is kind of, in a lot of ways, dying. It's kind of becoming in the... You know, it's, you know, rock today is kind of where jazz was in the 60s and 70s. It's a mature format. There's not a lot you can bring to it. So it's, it's kind of be all becoming retro. I was talking to uh, a man that we both know the other night, Adam Zammett. Mm. Um, I asked him when was the last time you saw a new band with a front man that uh, can just – because they'd just gone on seeing the cult play mm. and they were just saying, Ian Asprey, mate, they just don't make them like that anymore. And I said, when was the last time you saw a new band with a front man that had that? And he said, I haven't. But look, they might be out there. You know, I'm, I'm 50 now and I don't get out to the Annandale and those sorts of places. I have lots of younger friends who go out there and, you know, they're across all that kind of music. You know, as you get older and you have kids, you don't get out as much. So I'm not going to sit here and say it's not there, but I think rock's a mature format. Mm. And a lot of the people who are listening to rock and listening to that kind of music, you know, your older folks, sort of 35 plus, they've shifted over to country, certainly in the US. Um, you know, and a lot of the AC sounding stuff, if you listen to Girl Crush by Little Big Town, that kind of stuff, like that's, that's all really easy, you know, great songs, great songwriters, well produced. It's all, I mean, it's all happening in country now. But this, the, the scale, having, I ended up living in the States for about 10 years. The scale of the country music scene over there. There's a there's a joke over in the states. You can be uh, there's like there's not just famous. There's four kinds of famous. There's white famous. There's black famous. There's Jesus famous, and there's country famous. Yeah. So you can be white famous and you know go down to Atlanta and no one will know who you are, <laughs> or you can be the white person in Atlanta and you can be black famous and someone will jump out of a car and everyone on the street will freak out that this person's there and you won't know who it is. And then there's, you know, Jesus Famous, which is like if you're massive in the, in the God music scene. But then there's Country Famous where no one in Los Angeles will, you cannot get a table at a restaurant, but you will sell out 30,000 seats in Tennessee. Because mm. um, those are just massive, massive markets when it comes to 
when it comes to country music and it has the ability certainly in the states to to foster people on the road and people touring and people making those those kinds of well one of the biggest acts in the in the US right now Kenny Chesney he'll he'll go out and do 30 stadiums and sometimes some cities he'll do too Jason Aldean's kind of the same way it really is kind of that that's where the that's where those big acts actually are right now, and they you know a lot of these guys are you know in their forties and fifties. Um, you know Keith Urban's in that sort of getting in, into that space as well. So, you know it's the biggest radio format in the U.S. and, and it's starting to kind of it's it's starting to spread globally as the stigma comes off of it that it's for people with no teeth and it's don't 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 no hay bales and all that kind of stuff, and people start to realize that they're good artists with good songs. It's, mm. you know, that's where, that's where they, and it's starting to happen here, you know, our, the festival that we started with Michael Chug and Rob Potts 10 years ago has sold out the last two years with these kinds of acts. That's the CMC Rocks the CMC Snowies? CMC Rocks, yeah, well, CMC Rocks the Snowies originally, and then we moved to The Hunter uh, for four years, and now we're at Ipswich in Queensland, which is really the, sort of the, the heartland of country music these days. That's where I live, man. Yeah. Up in Brisbane. Yeah. That's, uh, that's where yeah. I live, yeah. So, yeah, we sold out last year with Jason Aldean and Florida Georgia Line. Um, and if you look at it, those, like, it's not fiddle and steel. It's, you know, three guitars, like Chase Rice and Kit Moore on there, and they've got three guitars and, you know, a drummer from Brazil. And it's, like, it's, it's rock in a lot of ways, yeah. you know, country, which means a lot of the traditional country fans who want fiddle and steel are kind of left out. And, you know, you hear a lot of whinging, that's not country and that kind of stuff. But, you know, who's to judge? Uh, there is a, there's a, a, inside country, as you just mentioned, there is a vast difference between, like, it goes all the way down to, to one microphone and bluegrass people. Yeah. All hustled around one microphone to all the way to the other end, where it's, Full on. The only difference between a, a pop song and a country song is a slight beat in the remix. Yeah, uh, or it might be the sound of the guitar. Um, yeah. Or it might just be the, the twang in the voice. Yeah. You know, I mean, Keith Urban's got a song on his album with Pitbull, and you know, Nile Rodgers plays the plays. You know, co-wrote the song. So it's it's still not as big as it could be in mm. Australia, but I think we're you know we're kind of getting there. And now we've got our own CMC music awards as well that so we're kind of moving into that space with the mainstream awards show because the golden guitars in tamworth have kind of held on to that kind of more traditional type right. thing yeah so oh i see yeah so we're, yeah we're we're kind of we're kind of the show busy version i suppose of country music i did like when i was living in the states i did like to, when i was driving find the am country station wherever i was and it was almost like that's the soundtrack to the part of the world you're in, particularly in Utah. There was one particular yeah. station in Utah that was just songs about 16-wheelers and songs about, you know, divorce. And well, you know, country is so great. big. In a, in a city like Houston or, or Kansas City, you'll have five country radio stations and you'll have, you know, two at the top end playing all the contemporary stuff, battling it out like typical radio. And then, then you'll have, um, you know, a, a traditional you know, radio station that plays more of the old school stuff and oldies. It's in a, in a lot of ways, it, it mirrors the rock formats of the eighties mm. where you'd have a couple of, you know, active rock stations and a couple of classic rock stations. It's kind of moving into that space now as well. If someone's got a, a large, um, uh, Hair. misunderstanding, <laughs> misunderstanding about, about country music, um, what what are what are some gateways? What are some entryways people can 
people can go towards. I mean, when I think about um, my entrance to country music, it was through that kind of crossover of uh, Wilco and Sonvold and uh, Ryan, Ryan Adams. In a way. If you're the Newtown Triple J uni type crowd, you're going to come to it through Jason Isbell or those kinds of acts. It's more of the Americana side of side of things. If you're, um, you know, kind of a mainstream school mom or something, it might be watching something like the CMA Awards where it's the Dixie Chicks with Beyonce. So it's there are lots of different sort of entry points, I think, for people. But ultimately, you know, it all leads back to... George Jones and George Strait and Johnny Cash. And that, and that's another place that's handy for people, too. Everybody likes Dolly Parton and Johnny Cash. So, you know, I interviewed Brad Paisley years ago, and I asked him a similar question, you know. And he said, uh, a lot of people come up to me and they say, you know what, I don't like country music, but I really like you. And he just says to them, well, then you like country music. It's the stigma. It's more of a perception thing than, mm. than anything. It's just this, for some, I think it's sometimes it's just portrayed that way in sitcoms and in movies that, you know, country people are, you know, it's dueling banjos or something. Like it's this, it's backwards country people. But, you know, th- there are smart people in the country too. Don't get me wrong. I, I do love some good finger picking. Yeah. It's incredibly technically proficient Look, stuff. Look, uh, bluegrass is the heavy metal of country music. You know, you think about it. There's a lot of similarities between an Iron Maiden and, you know, the Davidson Brothers in Australia. It's about speed, musicianship. It's about you know, harmonics. You know, it really, yeah. it really, like you could take, you could do a bluegrass record of, um, of Iron Maiden, like it's, it's the exact same thing, just with different, different instruments and different processing. You know, yeah. it's, it's fast, fast playing musicianship, basically. Like, you know, at the end of the day, it's all music. And, you know, I, I see on Facebook, I've got friends who are traditionalists, and they just whinge and moan about Luke Bryan, you know, being too wearing his glitter pants and being too pop or Florida Georgia Line doing a song with Nelly and yeah, music should be this, music should be that. I think it, ultimately it's, you can listen to whatever you want and everybody should be able to listen to what they want. And I like Herbie Hancock and I like Van Halen and I like Brad Paisley and it's all good. And if they ended up doing a record together, I'd be really stoked, right? <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't really, there's, there's, you don't really need to criticize. I mean, I, there are some things I like and some things I don't, but aside from saying Radiohead are crap and they're totally overrated, I always used to have this conversation with Miranda Boyce at, um, at work, um, who's at, strangely enough now running iHeart Country. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't understand a lot of music and I don't, I don't listen to it. But I'll I'll give it a go, and I like it's the ribbing I give is more in a in a you know good natured way. I don't understand it, but if you if you like Coldplay and they make you happy, more power to you. It's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> they are they are a steel guitar and a violin away though. Could be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although you know, I listened to um, Chris Martin on the Howard Stern show doing that interview, and I came around came away really liking the guy. Even though I'm yeah. not a big Coldplay fan, so which is another thing I really have to thank you for, and we should, we should get, <laughs> get out on this. 
Thank you for introducing me. I knew who Howard Stern was, mm. but I'd never really been indoctrinated into the like the straight to video release stuff. Like I'd never seen any Howard Stern. But Bongo Fiesta. Ch- yeah, yeah, yeah. Howard Stern's but Bongo Fiesta and what was the other one? New Year's Rotten Eve. Yeah. Well, uh, he hasn't done those for a long time, but um, I, I listened to some of my old air checks and um, one of the ones that I've, I have on SoundCloud is from 92 and I was doing gay and lesbian dedications. 92, you know, um, in Grand Junction, Colorado. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are a lot, it's, the, it's, it's a bit sloppy and, you know, not very good in some ways, but that was all inspired by, by Howard. Like I was, you know, he used to say, I used to listen, I used to get cassette tapes from a friend of a friend who lived in Philadelphia when he first started on WYSP and I, and he'd be doing lesbian dating game and that kind of stuff. And I just, it was like, wow, this is amazing. He's talking about real stuff instead of, you know, instead of talking to DJ voice and, you know, being Casey Kasem and all being about inflection and delivery and hitting the post and all that kind of stuff. He was talking about real stuff and that just, it was tremendously inspiring back then. And then, um, and then I got, you know, the videotapes and continued getting, you know, stuff from him over the years. But, you know, if you see private parts, it really boils down to, again, it's honest radio. Um, and it's not always tasteful and there are things he says that I don't agree with, but it's always storytelling. It's always doing callbacks. It feels like family. It's like listening to a soap opera, you know, the greatest broadcaster of all time, Baba Booey, hit him with the iron. <laughs> How do you stay up to date with Howard? No. Uh, I bit tore at the shows now, uh, and I would happily pay if I could, but he's on Sirius XM in the US. So, yeah, that's what I listen to in the car every day. Today I'm listening to his interview with Sting. Um, you know, and he's evolved too. He doesn't do as much of the, the raunchy stuff. There's still a little bit in there, but now he's really turning into an amazing um, interviewer of particular particularly rock acts. Uh, his Steve Miller interview a while back was amazing. Today I'm listening to Sting. Uh, he's had Lady Gaga in three or four times. Um, and, he, you know, he really digs into the history, what their childhood was like. Like, he's been going to therapy for 20 years, Howard, so he's always interested in these psychological aspects. And uh, But he talks about, you know, the jealousy in the bands, like with the police, he's, you know, talking about, um, you know what brought them to an end and we all know that it was because it was Sting writing all the songs and the other guys went I want some of that publishing money I want a couple of records songs on those records but but Howard's just you know he's he's evolved over the years I, I have a feeling he's in the last his last contract at the moment so I'm just loving it while it lasts right Howard's the best he's an inspiration behind many a many a career and well you know it's funny I listen I, I occasionally hear um uh you know, radio locally, and I'll hear bits that I'll hear Howard bits. You can I can tell that they've been listening to him as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> but you, you, it's it's like trying to say if you were in a band from the early seventies, yeah. it was like trying not to sound like the Beatles was almost an impossibility. Yeah. If you're at the top end of the radio spectrum, it, there are things that you are doing that I'm Howard has done. I'm talking you. to you, Kyle, <laughs> buddy. Pal, at least leave it a few weeks before you steal his bits. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, yeah. if it works, it works. Yeah, I suppose. Well, you know, it's when I first moved to Australia and 
I saw Steve Weiser doing his late night talk show and I saw the tapping of the pencil and throwing the pencil through the window and stuff. And I was like, this guy is just watching Letterman and he's just recreating Letterman. He's just doing the same show. But I suppose, that, you know, that in the old days of festival records, you know, Johnny Farnham would listen to it. You know, they'd get a record from the U.S. and then they would just re-record it here for the local audience, you know. But still, really? Tim, days. Uh, thank you so much for Are you out of tape? No, this, I could record you for six more hours. <laughs> but I've got some Ikea to build. Right. <laughs> yeah, actually, I could order 13 hours and 28 minutes of recording yeah. time I've got left on this card. Mm. I don't think we'll do 13 hours today. Thanks for coming around, man. Oh, so happy to be here. Man, awesome. I'm going to take your photo in your beautiful Randy Watson shirt. Randy Watson. Somebody stopped me in the shopping mall today. Yeah. He goes, where'd you get that shirt? And I'm going, somebody finally got it. <laughs> Jackson Heights' own Randy Watson. <laughs> Sexual chocolate. <laughs> All right, cool, man. And that was Tim Daly. Uh, thank you very much to everybody that has supported the show to help it come to air today. Patreon.com slash Osher. You can make a one-time pledge or an ongoing commitment to help this show come to air each and every week for about the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month. Five bucks a month. You can really help us get this show to air every week. This show would not happen without the support of Patreon subscribers. So thank you all very, very, very much for uh for being a part of this um have a good week i'm off to melbourne for a couple of days so if i see you down there nice to see you and um yeah we're we're very close i'm very close to wrapping up my time in brisbane my uh my tenure there is uh, uh coming to a to a close where i'm living there i'll be back in sydney broadcasting up to brisbane in about two weeks so uh if i see you in brisbane out and about on the road Give us a wave. I'll be the one on the bicycle. Until we speak next time, look after yourself. Change lanes to let cyclists live another day. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.